You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to another edition of the Systematic Investor Series with me, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investment journey. And if you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like, for example, last week's episode with Jerry, which may well be the best that we have done between the three of us. Now, you may already have noticed a slight difference in today's episode, as this will indeed be my first solo episode, as we did not think there would be a lot to talk about over this holiday period. But a quiet period like this is perhaps a time where many of us reflect on the year we've had, what we've learned from it, and what we can look forward to in 2021. So I thought I would do the same and share it with you. Like many things we do on this podcast, this is not perfectly planned, but is rather a raw and honest account of how I see things. Now, before we get into any of what I have planned to talk about today, I really do want to say a huge thank you to my co-hosts, Moritz, Jerry, and Rob. The effort that they all put in into making it possible for us to publish engaging conversation each week is amazing, and I'm very grateful to all of them. I also really appreciate all of the great guests we've had on during the year, both on our weekly Systematic Investor Series as well as the regular one-on-one TTU episodes and not least the Global Macro mini-series that Moritz Rob and I did this summer with some amazing thought leaders on this topic. For next year, we're going to switch things up a little bit with a few changes where Moritz will be coming on a bit less in the new year, but where Jerry will be back more often. And in addition to Rob, of course, I'm also going to be joined by a new co-host who has been on the show a couple of times before. So we end up with more of a kind of a monthly rotation between Moritz, Jared, Rob, as well as our new secret co-host. So uh, I hope we can continue to bring you value and entertainment each time you donate some of your valuable time to listen to Top Traders Unplugged. And of course... It wouldn't be right if I did not extend a real sincere thank you to all of you who listen each week. I appreciate you and I'm grateful for all of your support, the questions you send in each week. And I'm excited to see how more and more people are tuning in to the podcast each week. And of course, the podcast wouldn't be a reality with two of my secret weapons that work in the background, Dimitri and Shane, who makes us sound great and also makes the the website and and all the artwork work in a great way. So thank you so much for all of that. Now, as you all know, 2020 has been exhausting and challenging for many people. And in my opinion, it's also been a year of huge division in the world, as well as in the financial markets. We notice this when we look at how the wealth gap has increased between the wealthy and the poor, and also the civil unrest 
that this has led to. But we also see it in our own financial world and how differently people have been talking about things like Tesla and Bitcoin, just to name a few favorites. On one side, you have people who love these assets and would put most of their liquid net worth in them. And on the other side, you have people who think it's a fraud or a Ponzi scheme. But on our last episode uh, with Jerry, he, and I know Jerry is going to be listening to this episode, so thanks, Jerry. He did remind me of something vitally important in the systematic and rules-based world that we operate in. And that is that we shouldn't be skeptical and we shouldn't be opinionated about things like this. Just look at them as a market to trade like any other liquid market that we choose to have in our portfolio. In other words, don't get emotionally attached. And I think this is such a critical advice. And even those of us who have been doing this for a few decades by now, we do need to be reminded of this from time to time as we sometimes get too close to the markets and often are expected to have some kind of opinion about them, which of course we do, but it's not the basis of how we trade. But if we put aside what 2020 has meant for us as systematic traders and we ignore what it's meant in the markets, there are unfortunately millions, if not billions of people around the world for whom 2020 has nothing to do with stocks, nothing to do with bonds or QE, the Federal Reserve. This is a year where they've had real personal loss, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend or a colleague who have lost their life, or it could be a loss of job, it could be a loss of their income, uh, a loss of a business, or even loss of opportunity and loss of basic human interaction as we know it. And so what most people are going to remember 2024 may be completely different from what we as investors are going to remember it for. And it's it is really important to understand it and also to take it into account because when you do, the best path forward for most people with real jobs in the real world economy is most likely different from how we look at it through the lens of an investor or dare I say speculator. Okay, so let me go back to what we normally talk about on the show, namely how we trade, how we invest. And I thought I would use this solo episode to talk about how I think about trading and system development. Something I don't do too much of um in our usual conversations, because I have tried to comment on the questions and topics to a large degree on how we do things at Don. But of course, when doing that, I have to be somewhat careful about the things uh, like regulation and of course not giving away any of the true secret source. But as you have heard me mention on occasion, I do have a full trend-following system that I run each day for my own curiosity, as what you could call a forward test at this point, there's no actual money being traded in it. And this is, of course, because I had to close it down when I joined Dunn back in 2015. 
But I want to give you a bit of context. This trend following program was developed when I had my own CTA firm, which was started back in around 2007. And for many years, it traded with a decent amount of assets under management in the region of somewhere between 25 and $100 million during most of the period from 2007 to 2015. So this is not some kind of new back-tested system that I'm talking about, but an actual trend-following program that has a 13-year of actual and forward test data behind it. And before 2007, it is I'm basing my comments on a back-test of the system, and it goes back to 1995. So about 25 years worth of data. Now, an important point to note is that since about 2013, the rules and the code has not changed. So for me, it's been really fascinating to see how such a system has handled a very difficult time for trend following without any benefit of ongoing development during this unusual period in the markets. And the question is, has it been able to keep up with the best trend followers out there? I'll come to that later. But first, I want to talk about what went into the thought process back in 2006, 2007, when we were designing the different submodels that makes up this trend following program. So I want to start out with kind of a statement or philosophy that we worked with in our minds back then. And it goes something like this. Just as you could assemble a team of top traders from many different firms across the financial sector, we have built a collection of models with distinct personalities that think, in quotation, like professionals. Just like top traders, our fully systematic models use multiple confirmations, opportunistic initial risk allocation, and agile exit strategy. And this makes the trend-following model Different, but not too different. So let me just stop here for a moment and reflect a little bit on this statement of philosophy. Over the years, you have heard me and Jerry and Moritz talk about trading the markets in a uniform way, i.e. we apply the same approach and rules to all markets. However, you will also have heard Rob take a different approach in his overall portfolio construction using different, uh, how can I say, approaches to different asset classes. Now, for my trend-following approach, I would say that it's kind of a hybrid of this, and um, so I'm going to explain that a little bit more. So my program is a medium-term, breakout-style trend-following program, and it uses three groups of trend-following slash counter-trend systems, which provide differentiation by varying speeds of entry, and amount of initial risk. And it applies nimble, non-sticky exit strategies to a well-diversified portfolio, but with an atypical portfolio weighting. And the goal is to be different, but not too different. So as you start to think about the design of your system, you need to stop and think about what factors really influence its performance. Now, market conditions and how the program reacts to them really determine and differentiate the monthly performance. So, 
allow me to break down this into five key components. First, the program is a breakout style trader. And that means that markets must move past a key price level before it activates an entry. Therefore, I have set those key levels as part of a signature of the design. Secondly, because I vary the initial risk based on potential trend strength, the effective sector weights can be quite different from those who use a more static allocation. And thirdly, being a medium term, and by medium term I kind of mean one to three month trade length trader, the program may exit earlier than the very long term traders, and they must, of course, by definition, from time to time absorb more volatility in order to hold on to their positions. And fourth, the trading environment has a vital influence on any trading system's performance, meaning whether there are false breakouts, trendless markets, or trends that mature and and fail. And finally, the fifth point is that the subsystems that we chose have different speeds of entry and exit, i.e. how quickly they respond to market action. And it can often react much faster on both the entry side and the exit side, than other strategies, which can be sometimes an advantage in many situations, and it can also help to differentiate returns. Now, back in 2007, when we were designing the program, this was with the intention of managing outside capital. And as we have discussed on the podcast, when it comes to building a business around a trend-following program, you need to think about how you're different compared to what's really out there. So one of the things we thought about was how would the program in itself provide some level of diversification. And so at the most basic level, the program was designed to provide diversification for portfolios of bonds and equities. And over a period of, say, 12 to 18 months, the program will attempt to provide positive returns when there are broad-based declines in either the equity markets or bond markets or other global macro slash CTA strategies. Now, the two core areas of diversification are portfolio weights and system design. And one of the uh, decisions we took was to effectively underweight portfolio risk allocations to currencies, interest rates slash bonds, and to overweight commodities versus the larger managers. That's one of the ways we could be different. Another source of diversification came from what you can call system design, and you can break this down into four broad areas. One is how your entries are designed. Another one would be how you allocate initial risk and size your trades. A third one would be how your exit strategies are combined. And finally, how systems and markets are mixed inside the program. And by doing this, the program can effectively provide diversification over a period of weeks or months, not just years. And it actually did during a few memorable periods, like the bond sell-off in March of 2012, 
We had the equity market declined back in May of 2010, also known as the flash crash. And also the Greek tragedy back in August 2011. And that's just some of the periods that you will remember and where we were hoping to be able to deliver some level of diversification. Now, for our investors, of course, we also wanted to add value over and above the actual absolute returns by providing this meaningful offset to other strategies, even just a few times a year. So in the end, the program would provide many sources and levels of diversification. Now, when you go through such a detailed and lengthy design process, you also want to have a way to measure the overall effectiveness of your design. The design of the program affects how it processes and responds to random patterns in the market and and the market action. And in general, you want to increase your risk and participation when markets are trending. And you really want to reduce positions and risk when they're not. And so one way to measure the overall effectiveness that we have found of the overall design choices and the program's ability to, say, distinguish between friendly and unfriendly conditions is to look at something that we call the offense-defense ratio ODR, which is very simple, just the ratio of average winning month over the average losing month. The ODR is insensitive to leverage and to some extent portfolio weights. So it allows for a reasonable, fair comparison. And if you use a kind of longish time frame for analysis, this ratio should be approximately one to one or better. If you think about the design strategy of the program, you could say that it is to combine breakout style systems of different entry speeds, portfolio weights, and exit speeds. Inside the combined program, as, as I call it, there are a number of subcomponents, and these systems can be broadly placed into three different categories, each of which mimics the design styles of different categories of successful traders. Now, as you may know, successful traders exhibit unique skills in three main areas. They often use multiple confirmations for generating entry. They also don't take the same initial risk all the time. They risk more when they have conviction in the trade that it will be especially profitable and vice versa, of course. And they use multiple nonlinear exit strategies. So let me unpack that a little bit. Now, the challenge is to capture these behaviors in an algorithmic form so that there's no need for any kind of discretion to implement systems like this. And you could say that the program as a whole algorithmically combines traditional trend-following models with systems that mimic discretionary and also counter-trend traders while trading on a time horizon stretching from one month to one quarter. So the first group of systems that we chose is inspired by kind of the middle of the road trend followers who are neither too slow nor too fast 
to get in and out. One twist that we added was to use variable initial risk and somewhat maybe faster exits. Now, for example, this group had at the time an average correlation of a 0.6 to 0.7 to trend-following benchmarks as a whole, but they did have a relatively low correlation of only around 0.35 to 0.45 during negative and positive months when you calculate them separately. And that actually is a desirable signature for many allocators who own other types of trend-following managers. Now, the second group of subsystems, we wanted to mimic the signature of a quote-unquote discretionary trader who uses multiple confirmations, and so you're a bit slow to get in, but they do bet big when the trade looks particularly promising, um, but they also have, you know, they also had to mimic this usually sudden and maybe even emotionally driven exit um, that discretionary traders often uh, portray. And then there was one um, twist we added to this, and that is we wanted to take advantage of the fact that in trend following, and I, I've mentioned this before on the, on the podcast, in trend following you find that um, most of the profits uh, come from the long-sided trades. So this particular group would have a long-side bias. The group takes a larger than usual initial risk when the quote-unquote conditions are right, and it uses multiple exit strategies that increase in sensitivity over time of the trade. Over the long time period, this group of systems was expected to have an overall correlation of about 0.6 or so to industry benchmarks, but even lower correlation during positive and negative months as I mentioned also with the first group. The third group of systems we developed was there to mimic quote-unquote counter-trend traders who generally uses fixed initial risk, but they only trade a few select markets and they are quick to both get in and to get out. They are looking to buy, you could say, when markets are weak and they are looking to sell when markets are strong. Now, this group of systems has, naturally, the lowest correlation, as you would expect, to industry trend-following benchmarks, and then the other two groups that we designed. And that is consistent with the overall design the, uh, of what we wanted to achieve. So another way of describing the overall design is by what the program is trying to avoid. And it tries to avoid trading as much as possible, of course, in narrow ranges when moving average systems, for example, may give you a lot of false signals. And also the program would like to avoid extreme slow exits, possibly exiting relatively early after strong trends. Now, as you can tell, the program has different approaches to the markets in order to achieve the aim of being quote-unquote different. But important it is to know that each group of systems would use exactly the same rules on the markets that that group would be trading in order to avoid any overly optimized uh, systems. At the end of all of this, um, the program has a fully automated signal generation and trade management, and the focus is on the discipline and the systematic implementation 
at all times. So no discretion. You will have heard me also talk about this, that I'm not a big fan of overriding your systems and adding discretion to what you do. Okay, so if I was going to summarize all of this, you could say that the program algorithmically combines traditional trend following with discretionary and counter-trend trading models instead of just one way of trading the markets via a rules-based approach. Now that I have discussed the design strategy, let me briefly talk about some of the key benefits that we felt this design strategy would have. The primary benefit of the design strategy is to provide a positive offset over time against declines in stocks and bonds. So positive absolute returns over periods in which equities and or bonds would provide negative returns. Another possible benefit would include that it could provide positive absolute returns over time and also low downside correlation to other trend-following CTAs, but still capturing major trends across many market sectors. And if I look back uh, at specific examples, the program has indeed been successful in providing a positive offset during major market declines in the equity markets like the S&P and also the German DAX. And as mentioned earlier on, we saw it perform really well back in, say, August 11, when you had the U.S. downgrade and the Greek tragedy, but also in periods where you had the flash crash in May of 2010. And so it it kind of shows its ability to react quickly and provide a positive offset versus what you could call a passive offset strategy that relies on overweighting bonds and interest rate, which we see, unfortunately, many institutional investors solely rely on that. Another major benefit of the design strategy is that the program has low correlation to the downside of many other similar trading strategies, which, as mentioned, can be quite a desirable feature when you combine managers to build multi-CTA portfolios. You you often hear people say, well, you know, all trend followers have a correlation of 0.6, 0.7, so I only need one. But that's not really true. A correlation of 0.6 and 0.7 can still give you very different returns at different times. Of course, even if you come up with a very well thought out design, at the end of the day, any trend following strategy depend on trend strength, as as I like to refer to it, in the portfolio in order to generate any meaningful returns. Now, it's easy enough for us to say that any trend following program returns depend on trend strength in the portfolio, but it's not so easy to actually quantify and visualize what trend strength look like. But if you do have time, you can go to my website and you can see something called the trend barometer, where each day I publish the percentage of markets in this particular portfolio that the program trades. And this will show the percentage of these markets that are in any meaningful or measurable trend. So it basically divides it up in different levels of strength. And if you study the data of the trend barometer, it does suggest that trading conditions are extremely difficult for trend followers when less than 25% of, of the 44 markets in the portfolio is in a trending state. I would say that the break-even i.e. where you can't really tell if a trend follower is going to be up a few percent or down a few percent, 
is probably when the trend barometer finishes the month between 40 and 50%. And then if you go above, say, 60% at the end of a month, you would expect to see quite a positive performance by trend followers, which actually happens to be something that I'm noticing as we come to the end of 2020. Today is December 31st, and when I published it this morning, based on the data from yesterday, I think the trend barometer is hitting somewhere in the early 60s. So December should be a good month for our industry. What I've also noticed over the years is that if there is nine months out of a calendar year where you have weak trend readings, that's usually going to show up as a negative year overall for the trend-following industry. Now, I want to go back to one of the topics we probably don't discuss so much on the podcast when we talk about what determines performance, and that is what the role of portfolio weights in the trend-following program plays. So two managers using the exact same trading rules could be made to look quite different from one another simply by altering their portfolio weights, i.e. the initial risk put on in each of the different markets it trades. So when comparing the performance of, say, my trend following program to, say, Jerry, it is useful to be aware of the portfolio's weights used in each of our programs. For example, we know, and this is, of course, a generalization, but we know that larger managers tend to overweight, say, short, medium, and long-term interest rates because they can provide a lot of liquidity. Um, and that's obviously necessary if you have a large amount of AUM. So if these interest rate markets, for example, have trended strongly over a particular period, the larger managers are likely to outperform what I do, simply from the proportionality in the portfolio in terms of its exposure to um, this particular sector. But not necessarily because of a superior system design. And the same could probably be said about the two other financial sectors, namely equities and currencies, although I will have to admit that these two sectors have been very tricky in the past few years. So as hard as it can be to know precisely, because we don't really know what other managers are doing, performance is sensitive to portfolio weights, and so portfolio weights cannot be ignored when comparing performance to other managers. But as mentioned before, I would recommend that you also use the offense-defense ratio just to help evaluate the nature and quality of system design. So I think this was probably as much as I had in mind to talk about when it comes to what went into designing my take on a trend-following program. And I hope this has been useful to you, whether you are building your own or investing with external trend-following programs. I think I'm going to leave it here for this episode, and then I'll do a part two of this that will probably come out in a week's time, where I try to break down the performance in a lot more detail, both from the longer-term perspective, going back to 1995, but in particular, the performance of 2020, as I find it fascinating to see how a strategy that effectively was designed more than 10 years ago has coped in a very different environment to what we knew back then. But before I leave you, 
let me bring you up to date on how the year looks like it's gonna finish with the data that I have from well I have it from yesterday the 30th but actually that would still be data based from managers on the 29th of December I think yesterday was a decent day for trend followers meaning it was a positive day and today of course the markets will still be open but who cares it's close enough to year-end numbers so if we look at the BTOP 50 index the index of the 20 largest CTAs that are open to new investments and are willing to provide daily returns December is up currently at 3.54 percent putting the year at 4.3%, which is actually a pretty solid year. If we go on and we look at the SOCGEN CTA index, we have the month of December now up 4.68%, putting the year also in the black, 2.28% year-to-date. We have the SOCGEN trend index up a strong 5.42% for the month. And that puts it up 5.12% for the year. So very strong reading. And then we have finally the SOCGEN short-term traders index up 0.3 of a percent for the month of December, up 2.66% for the year. And finally, the SOCGEN multi-alternative risk premium index is up in December, about 56 basis points, but still down about 15% for the year 2020. Interestingly, of course, to me is that in a year where quote-unquote crisis alpha has been a big thing in terms of the narrative, both from investors and from the press, and I also think it's fair to say that trend followers got a little bit of slack in the beginning of the year, say the first half, maybe even the first nine months, for not delivering better returns, so to speak, even though I disagree that you could expect that from an from an event like this year, but we can talk about that with the other guys. It is interesting, though, to see that at the end of the year, the better performing indices are actually the long-term trend-following managers and not the short-term traders. So I think that's important to know. And of course, there are short-term traders out there who do a really good job and have done for a long time, but my own personal feeling based on the observations I've made over a long period of time is still that overall and over the long run, the time frame has to be longer term. That is still the most successful way of trading the markets the way we do. Now, before I wrap up completely, I know that your time is a great unrenewable resource and that you lend us an hour or two each week to keep up with the podcast, to learn and to fail and to get up with us and to walk together on this journey of figuring out how to best trade and invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world. And for that, I'm always incredibly grateful. And on that note, I'm going to wrap up completely this conversation, this solo conversation. I hope you got something out of it. And if you did enjoy it, let me know. And also, if you wouldn't mind, spend a few minutes to go to iTunes and leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast. And of course, make sure to keep your questions coming for when we're back with the normal, regular schedule, probably mid-January. You can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we will do our best to answer them as soon as we can. And of course, you can also follow all of us on Twitter where from time to time we 
do manage to share some really great information. From me, Niels Karstolarsen, thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well, stay safe, and happy new year. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.